and the Canadians are holding him. Degrasse, can he do it? Yes, he can. Gold to Canada. And after what a difficult season it's been for Degrasse, he tastes gold in the form. Hello and welcome back to the Shaco Podcast, presented by Canadian Running Magazine. As always, I'm your host David Stalton. On today's episode, we have a very, very special guest a two-time Olympian and the fastest woman to ever run a marathon in Canadian history, Natasha Wodak, joins the program to discuss what lies ahead for her during such a crucial Olympic year. Last week, you might remember Marley and I recapping the results from the Houston Marathon and offering our speculation around its Olympic implications. And after battling through a strained hamstring in such a gritty performance in Houston, Natasha commented on one of our clips saying, Happy to discuss my thoughts and plans with y'all so you don't have to guess. I mean, of course, speculation is half the fun. But her point still stands. Who better to discuss Natasha's career than Natasha herself? Plus, I'm never going to say no to the opportunity to talk to one of the greatest distance runners in Canadian history. So... I shot Natasha a message, and she was gracious enough to carve out time to break down the race, whether or not she plans to squeeze in one final run before the Olympic qualifying cutoff time, and who she thinks might best represent Canada in Paris on both the men's and women's marathon. We also discussed the most challenging races from her decorated career, the frustration of receiving running advice from armchair experts online, and her advice for young marathoners hoping to follow her blueprint. Of course, if you enjoy the episode, please feel free to give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us out a ton. You can also follow us at ShakeOut Podcast on all social platforms. That's TikTok, that's Instagram, that's X, Facebook, etc. And you can catch updates from the pod. But for now, please enjoy my chat with Olympian and Canadian record holder, Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us so soon after Houston. I know you had a little bit of a chance to unwind, get away for a bit. You gave people a little bit of an update as to how you were feeling, but you know, we're just over a week out now. How's your body feeling? How's the recovery been? (laughs) yeah um I'm feeling okay um emotionally and mentally I'm actually feeling really good which is sometimes the most important part when you're like okay (laughs) that was crushing am I going to be okay and I am I the first the first 24 hours was really bad and then I was I was I got we got to Mexico the next day and I was like all right like life goes on we're good Um, I was so, so sore though. Like for that first 48 hours, I mean, Mm. I was like limping around the resort. My partner was telling people that were looking at me, oh, she just had a stroke. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was actually really funny, but I was, yeah, like just, it was really bad. But then, you know, like by the end of the week, I was able to do a little walk run on the Saturday. So like six days after, and you know, my body's still a little cranky, but I didn't do any, any, any big damage in, in the marathon. Like I was worried about, um, Mm. my hamstrings are still a little bit tight. My right calf that had, um, 
kind of seized up. Um, I ran today for about 30 minutes and I could feel it a little bit. So there's just a few little things in my body and it'll take a few weeks before um, I'm back doing sort of any, you know, anything longer than probably 60 minutes. So right now we're doing, you know, like 20 minutes the other day, day off 30 minutes, day off 40 minutes. So we are very gentle at my uh, return to run. So yeah, so far everything's okay. So and I know you entered Houston with a bit of that strained hamstring, obviously. Midway through the race, was there any fear that, you know, that discomfort, that pain you were feeling was going to be something more serious? Totally, yeah. I had a huge amount of anxiety uh, and fear going into Houston. Um, I, you know, I looked, I tried to look back at my training and to gain confidence because it was some of my best work and I knew that I was fit but this hamstring just constantly felt tight for the two weeks and it wasn't it wasn't painful per se but it was there and there was a fear that it would it would be painful and at what point and that's not something no matter how fit you are if that happens and it seizes up it's exactly what happened in Houston is Mm. you start compensating your pace slows, then my calf went like it was, and it was exactly what I had feared would happen. It happened. And um, I had a gut feeling the week of Houston that I should postpone. Mm. Um, And I I wish now that I had listened to it, but it's so hard when you're like, it's felt like it was getting better. You're tapered, everything, the plans in motion. We're going to Houston, we're going to Mexico you know, I've got everyone, physio, RMT, coaches, everyone's saying, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And so you just hope for the best and you take the risk. And um, unfortunately, you know, it it didn't work for me. Um, so, yeah, dang hamstrings. <laughs> but it must be so tough, I'm sure, to read how a day is going to go especially at an elite level where there's such a margin for error like i know correct me if i'm wrong leading into berlin you were a little stressed about sleep and that time change and then obviously you go out and everything just falls into place is it uh, you know at what point does it kind of feel like okay it might just be my day if i go out there and run it it's worth the dice roll oh totally and like I had strained my glute going into the New York half in the spring and it was fine. And I strained my right hamstring in the summer. It's the same hamstring. And I ran Canadian 10,000 meter champs and it was fine. So I kind of had this like, Oh, it'll be fine, but it's a marathon. It's not a half marathon. It's not a 10, it's not a 10 K. So, um, and you know, I'm always willing, you know, I'm, this is trying to qualify for the Olympics. So I was willing to take the risk and sort of gamble and, you know, and we had gone over all my training and I was able to execute all of my workouts, even with this sort of tightness in my hamstring and it it wasn't like blowing up. So we were like, okay, but again, I got, it made it, it did, it made it to 30 K and then it was, yeah. And that's, yeah, that a lot after, you know, you're like, oh, it's only 12 K to go, but everything, when you start going backwards, it goes backwards so quickly. I mean, I lost I lost the standard essentially in the last 5k like it had and it was just heartbreaking knowing like there's like I'm looking at my heart rate afterwards on Strava and it's like the engine 
I wasn't, my heart rate was like low, but my body just would not go any faster. And that's incredibly frustrating when the uh -huh. fitness is there and you, you're like, I can do this, but you're just like moving through quicksand or whatever. It was incredibly frustrating. That yeah. must be the most maddening part too. And the marathon is so distinctly unique in the sense of, I don't think there's any other sport or discipline on the planet really where you can be, you know, let's say an hour and a half into the work. And if people haven't seen that video that you uploaded that I believe Alan took where he's cheering you on your partner and, and giving this encouragement and you are doing the math in your head and you kind of know that that's slipping away. How frustrating is that to, to know, okay, I'm gonna still have this work ahead of me. And then what sort of discipline does it take to say, I'm, I'm going to finish the race. Like, was there a party that said, you know what? I can see the time slipping. Maybe I'll, I'll drop out and save this for a potential plan D. And you have so much time to think. <laughs> yeah, you know, my coach Trent and I had decided that if I was not going to run the standard, I would drop out um, and save myself for another day. But it, I, had, I was already at 35K when I was like, I don't think it's going to happen but you're at 35 K you've been running for two hours yeah. and I had already been suffering basically from 25 on. I was, I had, it was really hard. So I was like, I did not come this far and to just drop out now. And also like, let's be honest, Houston, if you drop out at 35 K it's a long way back, it's cold. They take forever to come get you. And I was like, okay, as long as I don't think I'm, you know, like doing any serious damage to my body, I can tough this out. And always in the back of your head, you're like, what if things come around? What if everything loosens? Like, what if, what if, what if? And I've never dropped out of a race. Like once in cross country in 2000, I had strep throat. Besides that, I have never dropped out. So for me, it's a very, it's just not in me. And I knew Alan was going to be around 36, 37. I coached three women. I knew they were going to be at 40 K and I was like, I need to get to them. Mm. And I just need to like, just keep going. And it wasn't like I was in pain, but it wasn't to the point where I was like, I'm in so much pain. I need to stop. It was just yeah. like, this hurts. This is really uncomfortable. I can't run any faster. And so that was in incredibly frustrating. And just knowing that I wasn't, when I realized I wasn't going to hit the Olympic standard, I started to cry like in the race and that's really tough too, because you're, then you're mentally breaking down and you're just like going through all these things like, ah, like <laughs> what do I do? It was, yeah, it was, it was tough, but uh, yeah, you just keep going. Like training prepares you for that, right? You have mm -hmm. lots of training sessions that are really tough and you want to quit and you just keep going. So when, when you're in those moments, you just keep going and thinking of again, the people that were on the course, I knew I needed to get to them. And mm. I just kept, those were my markers, right? Get to those people and then get to the finish line. And you are sort of known, like you said, for being able to be in that dark space in a race and be able to push through. And, you know, some quotes from your eight competitors and, and fellow marathoners at the distance who have talked about that before. Lainey Marchand in particular has said that you are exceptional at being able to be in that space and push through. Was this the most challenging marathon from a mental standpoint for you in terms of being present and staying in the moment? I feel like I didn't 
I didn't do as good of a job as I did in Budapest. Um, in Budapest, things got really tough in the last 10K, but I was really able to focus a bit better and say, I, you know, I'm keeping this top 15 position. But then again, I wasn't in as much physical discomfort. It was just more like, I just, you know, it was hard. It got hard for it being hard. Yeah. This was something I hadn't really dealt with before in training was like where your body is physically like shutting down, um, like with niggles, not, mm. you know, like, and in training and things had just gotten hard and I was able to push through. Um, so I feel like mentally I was just a little, and even from the beginning of the race, I did, I never felt settled. Um, I felt really antsy. Um, and so I just wasn't, I wasn't quite myself, I think. And, you know, I'll always finish unless I physically can't. So, um, but yeah, to be, you know, crying mid race is not ideal. And so I wish I could have been um, a little tougher in that way. And just, but yeah, there. Yeah. So did the yeah. conditions play a role as well? Obviously coming in with pain and dealing with something, I'm sure that takes the brunt of the emphasis when it comes to challenges in the race, but it, wasn't necessarily ideal conditions. I know it was a really windy day on the course. Do you think that played a role for elites generally across the board? It definitely was windy. I I felt I felt like it was windy in every direction. And then at 25K, the pack that I was with, they got ahead of me. And then I was alone for the entire last 17K. And so, yeah, that was tough. Um, the wind is really challenging for everybody. I don't, I, I think it's, of all the elements, the one I struggle with the most, um, I'd rather it be raining. I'd rather it be cold, like all these things, but yeah, that, um, I think too, when you're having a bad day and you know, wind gust gets you, sometimes it can be really defeating. So, mm. yeah. and you know, it was such a gritty performance. I think that even with everything that went awry and I know it feels different from your perspective, but from a fan's perspective and from, um, your, I'm sure, training partner's perspective seeing you just be less than two minutes away from the standard feels so close given everything that you were battling through now you said coming in obviously london was your plan a world champs was your plan b sickness and a tough course i know play a role in in those being you know difficult races and then houston was the plan c now has the notion that okay, there isn't a plan D. Has that shifted at all? You made a post today that we even had fellow elite marathoners who I interviewed earlier today buzzing with anticipation. Is there anything locked in? Is there anything that you're tentatively eyeing down? I do have a spring marathon planned, yes. Uh, <laughs> I can't say what it is, but yeah, we immediately after I was like, I'm not doing, I can't do this again. Like, I did three marathon builds last year. I got myself in 223 shape three different times. And for none of those to result in a in, in something that was an Olympic, even a not not necessarily um an Olympic center, but not even something I thought that I was fit for. So mm. it was a very disappointing year. And it was, you know, I it was it's hard to get fit for a marathon and do those yeah. builds. And so I was like. I just didn't think there was any way that I wasn't <laughs> going to get it done in Houston. Like, yeah. And so I, and I also was like, I don't know if I can put my body through this again. And then if I do qualify in April, then do it again for Paris. That was yeah. the whole thing. Like, can I do another build? And, and so I have to try, 
I have to try. I can't not give it everything. And, um, you know, lots of people reached out to me. It was incredible. Like mm -hmm. the comments, the support, the people messaging me, like, um, and you know, like, you know, Melindy the next day said, you know, you can't give up. You deserve to be there. I need you to be there. And no one said it was going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me that no one said it was going to be easy. And that's damn right. Like a lot of my career hasn't been easy and I am a fighter and it's not going to be easy. It's going to probably be the most challenging six months of my life if I get to Paris, but I'm willing to give it a try. I know I can run sub to 26.50. So um, yeah, and you know, two days later, I was emailing, I emailed four different um, marathons and yeah, within three days, I got all the responses and I'm very lucky. I had three three marathons that said, come on down. Uh, one rejection. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I, I we, we looked at the dates and we looked what would work. And I'm really excited with what we've chosen. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm excited. I just hope that my body can come around and we can get it done. But, you know, if, if I can't get to the start line, you know, we're going to try our best and we'll say that we did try our best. So Yeah. And you, you know, I'm sure that'll help be at peace with whatever happens between now and Paris, just knowing a, you never would have dropped out of Houston and B you're going to take that final shot. That feels very quintessentially Natasha-esque. <laughs> Oh, thank you. You know, we have a saying in my family, never say die. That's what the Wodaks say. <laughs> so it should be of no surprise to anyone that I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll do it again. Even though, you know, I was like, after the race, I was crying. I'm like, I want to retire. <laughs> I don't do this anymore. <laughs> but, and yeah. I know after such grueling builds too, for a lot of marathoners, that's not an uncommon mindset to have. If you know, okay, maybe this is my last one. And I know both you and Melindy have been there before. I believe in Tokyo, those are some conversations that you've had. How much of a motivation is it to get to do that ride with her again on the Olympic stage and, and again, share that moment as, as Canadian athletes? I mean, it's so special. Like I actually chatted with Melinda yesterday. We had a good chat, which was so nice. And, um, you know, she's such a, a wise lady and always has, you know, great advice. And I, it's funny. I always, I look, I look up to her, even though she's only one year older than me, mm. but, um, yeah, you know, we, we need each other there. The us 40 year olds, all the other kids on the team, <laughs> They call me mom. They call me mom. They were calling oh, me mom. Oh, get out of here. Which I actually, I, I, uh, I, I quite liked. It was very cute. So, um, yeah, we, uh, but Melinda and I, you know, we also train well together. Um, and she lives about three and a half hours from me. So, um, she did say like, come up to Kelowna and do some training because she's running, she's running Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the marathon that I've chosen is around that date. I can't tell you what. So she, she was like, come, you know, like, let's do some training together. Let's make it fun. And um, yeah, it is always better together. And, and you know, there's very few women in Canada that I'm able to do workouts with. So um, it, it's great to, to do work with her. And she always has a great attitude. And mm. yeah. Now, you mentioned you, you guys both have this wisdom or surrounding the marathon after being in the distance for for quite some time now and putting in the time in Tokyo. And obviously, 
you have experience on the Olympic stage from Rio at a different discipline, but how, when you look at your approach to Paris, do you think your mental approach to the distance has evolved since last Olympics? Is there a different sort of mindset that you approach races with? <laughs> Jeez, I think I still have this fear of the marathon and maybe even more now, which is because I know how it can go sideways, even when you're so fit. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's scary to, to line up. And I think in Tokyo, I didn't have as much of that, mm. which is actually a good thing. Like, cause I hadn't, I hadn't really had a bad, I hadn't had a bad marathon yet. They'd all been good. It all gone well. So I signed up there being like, yeah, like I, this is going to go well. And it did. So I was lucky. But since then I've had ones that have not gone well, a couple, you know, Boston and now, and now Houston. So um, now I have that in me. So I find that it's probably a little, a little more um, scary, but I also know how to deal with things better when things mm -hmm. get, get tough. Like I have a whole four years of, of marathon builds under my belt. So I also know that I'm, you know, stronger and stronger mentally. Yeah. Uh, and I think going into Paris, like knowing that that really will be my last, would be my last Olympics, just I think being able to really enjoy it for being there, I think mm. I'd be able to do that more than I would before where it was like, yeah, like more pressure. You got to do well, where this would just be like, I'm here. I'm, I have nothing to lose. Like yeah. this is it. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think it would be a, a distinctly different feeling coming into Paris than Tokyo where, you know, you're coming in thinking, okay, again, this is, definitively i want this to be my last ride at the olympics is there a bit more of uh okay i can be at peace with however this race goes you know it's really hard to say yeah. until you're like there and everything because you i'd like to say that i would feel that way but i'm such a competitor that i think at the end of the day i would be there and nothing but my absolute best and like a top eight would probably make me happy so mm. Yeah, you know, you're always a competitor, even when you're like, even if the race is not that important, it's not in me not to give like 100% and to go out and like, grind as much as I can. And so, yeah, 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 I, I'm not surprised, right? That switch <laughs> flips, and then you go, yeah, but how many people can I pick off at the last 10k or whatever it uh, is, right? Yeah. Now, You'd mentioned earlier, you had so many supportive, positive comments, the inevitability of being a public figure and especially a pro athlete is that you're also going to have these armchair experts who are commenting on your post, telling you, oh, I would do this with my form. And one thing I love about you is, you know, I think the traditional Canadian sensibility would be thinking, okay, well, great. They mean well, and I'm going to ignore it and let them sort of throw their two cents in during the most challenging moment of, of my year. But you have a great sense of sometimes just go, you know what, I'm going to screenshot this, throw it on my story. And I know some people are going to get a kick out of it. Has that been something that you've adjusted to a little bit throughout your career is knowing, okay, some people are going to have tips for me from their couch and is, or as, does that get more frustrating throughout your career? Oh, no, it's not frustrating at all. It's funny. Um, <laughs> I found it very, I was sitting in Mexico, you know, had a, having a margarita and I'm like, I'm like, what? A, who's this tool? I was like, what the heck? So, um, and also 
they weren't DMs. These were comments on my actual posts. And so therefore I'm like, you're going to put that where everyone can see it. I'm going to, I'm going to blast you. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. Um, but also you like, I realize I put everything when you put your life out on social media, you're going to get comments like that. And yeah. so I, um, I try not to take them to heart. I used to, um, people, I think people were meaner before. Like people had said some things about my appearance when I was on the cover of a magazine years back, which was really hurtful when I was, you know, it was like 2013 or 2015. Lanny and I were on the cover of Canadian running and some people, there were some comments on let's run that were really, really nasty and really mean and hurtful. Right. When someone's, you know, commenting on your image and saying you look a certain anyways, it was now I see these things and I just laugh because I'm, I'm a more confident woman. I'm confident in my running. And it's also easy when you're sitting here as, you know, the Canadian record holder and here's these people telling you how to get faster. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I've run pretty fast and like this race didn't go well, but I also have, you know, the best people in my corner is like mm-hmm. Mary Lou LeMay is my physio and she's, you know, one of Canada's best physios. I've got Trent as my coach, who is like an incredible coach. I have Lynn Kanuka, who's coach number two, who's a freaking bronze medalist from the Olympics. Like my partner is an orthopedic surgeon who's like my own personal doctor. Like these people are trying to give me advice. I'm like, you guys can, it's laughable because I have such an amazing support team that is taking care of me that I think it's more amusement than anything. And I like putting it out there and I got so many people um, DMing me. It was hilarious. And I love all the comments. And so it was just kind of funny. And um, I don't know who these people are, if they're actual, like, if they're just trying to get a rise or they're being serious. Like, it was crazy. I don't even know. We had to Google what a KPI was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? I saw that one in particular. It gave me a bit of a laugh for sure. And it's so funny. I think, you know, part of it as well in the sports media sense is we also love to come up with narratives, right? And I think we talked about it before where, you know, we like to come up with, Ooh, the storyline is Leslie versus Natasha and they've gone head to head X many times and there's a rivalry and you sort of come on and say, look, there's no, we're competitors. There's no rivalry. Can you speak to a little bit though of like that mutual respect that you and Leslie must share? Because I, I know that, you know, she's had some great quotes of how much she respects you as a runner and I'm, I'm sure it's mutual, but you've had these battles over the years as competitors. How much does that just help the respect grow? Yeah, Leslie is a friend. She lives here in Vancouver now. We do easy runs together. We've done workouts together. So much respect for each other. And I I felt sad that she didn't run the standard. And she felt sad that I didn't run the standard. I didn't care that she beat me. I don't know if she cared that she beat me. I don't think she did. When she ran by me in that last K, you know, she said really kind words. I think it was something along the lines of we, we don't give up on our, on our, on our hard days. We keep pushing. And it was nice to hear that. Right. And I, I tried to go with her, but she, I think she closed with like a three twenty, and I closed with like a three fifty. So she got 30 seconds on me now. And it was just seeing her off in the distance, but it was, I didn't think for a second, Oh, Leslie's beating me. I thought, Oh, and I knew Leslie's not running the standard too. And that made me yeah. feel sad as well. Um, and, but it was nice for her to say something supportive to me as she went by. And then Mm. when we finished, you know, she, I was devastated. I was 
just like crying and crying. And I forget what she said. It was like about 10 minutes later, but it was something like, you know, I'm really sorry. Everyone loves you. Like, you'll be okay. Like, and I wasn't really able to say anything back to her, even though she had, you know, she didn't run the standard either. So I just remember thinking that that was really kind. And, and, and then we exchanged messages later on in the day and the next day and stuff. And, um, yeah, we, we definitely have a lot of respect for each other. Um, and I hope that she gets another chance as well. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously at the end of the day, let's be real. We're both going to try and make the Olympics. So there's only three spots. So I do want to make sure that, you know, I get one of those spots. Yeah. And, it, you know, since there was two extra spots in Houston, I was like, sure, you can have one too. But like, you know, let's say Andrea Sakafian goes and runs the standard in Tokyo in March. Yeah. Well, if I'm lining up at my spring marathon and Leslie's there again or whoever else is there again, you know, it might be a little more competitive. I yeah. mean, you know, not yeah. it might, it would definitely be more competitive. So at the end of the day, you know, even if it's my Melindy next to me, my buddy here, yeah, we're going to be we're gonna try and beat each other. Um, but then we're gonna hug after and go have drinks. So totally. Yeah, I think that that's the beauty of competitive sports, right? I think that's what people fall in love with too. And it's such a, it's going to be such a fascinating storyline all through the spring too, because, you know, it's the biggest stage in the world. There's a tight timeline for a lot of people and there are two spots open. I think it's great that there's such a community of this generation of marathon runners, whether it's Melindy or Leslie yourself. And you mentioned it, there's sort of a new competitor now entering the mix in Andrea taking on her first marathon in Tokyo. Now, again, there were some more armchair experts who commented on our clip and said, oh, there's no way that she'll be able to adjust to the distance, which, again, I won't speak to, but I'm curious on your thoughts as someone who actually runs the marathon at an elite level. How do you think Andrea will adjust to the distance? And, you know, obviously someone who's made that jump herself in yourself going from the 10k to to the marathon what are some of the key differences in the training and in, in terms of how your body's going to react to it well i mean i you know i trent coaches andrea trent coaches natasha so <laughs> i know what she's doing i know she has a great coach i have zero doubts that she can run the standard it's just a matter of is she going to get the right day is she going to get the right pace group if all those things do happen, I think she will run the standard. I ran 226.19, basically my first crack at it um, after seven years. And she's coming from almost exact same place that I was. We have the almost exact same time in the half marathon. And she's also been, she runs more mileage than, than I do. And yeah, I, I think the only real big ad adjustment in the training for her, I think, is is the long the long run workouts. Um, and she seems to be adapting to them really well. And, you know, for Andrea, though, you know, she's coming back from two years of injury. So, you know, that's also a concern is keeping her healthy and stuff. But right now, she's doing great. She's thriving. You know, I'm excited for her. You know, there's this, oh, she might take another spot, which is tough. But if anyone deserves to run well, it's her. 
she's been through hell and back in the last two years. And um, yeah, I'm cheering for her. And especially because now she's my teammate and, mm. you know, she takes a spot and I get that third spot. It'd be amazing for her to be here in Vancouver, hopefully, and do some training together towards Paris because she is such a hard worker and she's so gritty. So yeah, I have zero doubts that, that she can run, that she will run the standard. Yeah. Yeah, and and we'll take your word over uh, over over a handful of other anonymous accounts. Now, I think she's on Strava. Yeah, you you, you can go check out her work and see how she's doing, and and she yeah. seems to be adjusting just fine. And I think I'm sure on your end, not to speak for you, it's also an element of you control what you can control. You can't get too wrapped up in well, if she runs this, then there's this opportunity, and what if Leslie runs this race? Your mind, I'm sure, is is just present on, you know, the race that you have on the horizon and making sure that you tackle it as, as tactically as possible. But I want to dive into a name you mentioned there, Trent, who is your coach, who's we have the opportunity to, to chat with him next week and get some insights into his coaching because he has just been on such a tear with athletes, yourself included, Gabrielle Stafford, also Andrea now. So I'm curious what about Trent's coaching style made him such a good fit for you? Because I know you were obviously coming from a coach in Lynn that you had such an intimate connection with too. Yeah, that transition was really tough because Lynn and I were so close and I had so much success with Lynn too. Um, and she still, we're so close. And we FaceTimed twice this last week trying to navigate what I was going to do and you know, ultimately she's the one that I go to when I need advice on racing and stuff, just because Lynn knows me as a person and as an athlete and, you know, she's, she's mama Lynn too. Right. So she has that element. And so I basically say like, I have two coaches now I have, I have Trent and I have Lynn, but um, I had worked with Trent for years and years um, because he was the team physiologist with mm. athletics Canada and so he had helped put my heat plan together for Tokyo and yeah he knew me well and I knew that he was coaching Melissa Bishop and um at the time that was I think he was only coaching Melissa and so Lynn and I were going through well who's on the west coast like that could coach me and I'm like oh Trent let's let's give it a try and also like knowing that Trent comes with Hillary his wife mm. who is you know, a friend of mine, she coaches at the University of Victoria. And so, you know, you kind of not kind of you get Hillary too, you know, like Hillary and Trent were with me in Phoenix this over the holidays. And it was really great to be able to bounce ideas and thoughts off of Hillary as well. Um, so anyways, yeah, when when we transitioned to, to Trent, I was very fortunate that he was, you know, willing to take me on. And um, I loved that he was still so open to everything that Lynn had to say and what, you know, like learn knowing what worked for me and not changing it too much. So mm. there hasn't been a huge amount of change with Trent. He still talks to Lynn about, about me and like what works best. And he listens to me, which I love, like mm. he'll throw ideas out there and I'll say, mm, do you think that we could tweak this? And he'll be like, no problem. And he will. And mm. You know, that's so important to me as a senior athlete. I, I I know my bodies. I know what works for me. Well, I trust him and I'm willing to try things. At the end of the day, I get the final say. And yeah. I love that he respects me in that way and appreciates what I have to say. And so, 
yeah, the, the relationship's gone really well. I trust him. He also has a really great, I would say, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he's able to, you know, understand that when I had a bad race, it's not just like all the, I guess, the physical things. He, you know, he understands the whole emotional side of it. And that's mm. hard sometimes to get out of a coach and a male coach in particular. Yeah. <laughs> And you made a really salient point there, too, that I've heard sort of universally about Trent is that, A, he's so good at listening to his athletes. And also, again, that emotional intelligence that you alluded to. I think this is I mean, it's sad to say, I think it's sadly a new phenomenon that we're seeing of, okay, for male coaches coaching women athletes, there has to be an adjustment in how much you're listening to your athlete and trusting that they know their own physiology or they know their own mindset. We've seen nightmare scenarios notoriously with a Mary Kane, for example, where that's not the case and the detrimental results of that. How much was Trent's emotional intelligence, that ability to listen, those sort of non-traditional coaching traits, how much does that set him apart? Oh, huge. I mean, I, you know, even this week in particular, you know, like, his messages to me and were just really heartfelt. And like, you know, at one time, one point I messaged him, you know, I'm sorry that I let you down. And of course, like he, he was just like, don't, you know, don't not say that I'm so proud of you. And, you know, went on to say all this really nice kind stuff that had nothing to do with like, you know, he's a very sciencey guy. He's very charts and this and that. And, and he knows his stuff. But at the end of the day, when you have a bad race like this, none of that matters. It's all about, you know, getting me, you know, cheering my soul up and making Mm -hmm. me feel better. And that's what he was able to do. And he was able to say all the right things. And so I was so grateful that he was, you know, and he knew he can't, you know, he was like, we need to start making next steps, but he was, gentle in that way to like appreciate that I was still like <laughs> I don't know what I want to do <laughs> but um yeah it, it's just been great and uh I'm very grateful that you know in this world where you see all these shitty coaches <laughs> yeah that you know I've had some really amazing ones so yeah and I think if people aren't familiar with Trent Stellingworth First of all, they should be. Second of all, he is so well-versed in the data and the science. So to have that mixed with that ability to have empathy for your athlete, I think that's a mix that we so rarely see. Now, you referenced Mama Lynn, Lynn Kanuka earlier, who is at such a huge role in maybe larger than just your career, your life in general. In terms of a coaching standpoint, what were some of the biggest contrasts between Trent and, and her approach? What were some of the differences that you were adjusting to initially? Yeah. Um, with Trent, we added in the double thresholds, mm. uh, I think like everyone's doing. Um, so that, you know, in the beginning, that was really hard. Um, but I got used to them. I got better at them. Um, but we still kept in the ellipticals like I was doing with Lynn. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a little bit more mileage, but not, not significant at all. Um, We still kept in a lot of the same fartlek style workouts midweek. 
the some of we did a, we do a lot more um long run progressions mm. um but you know again with lynn i only did two marathon builds so yeah. um we didn't and a lot more 10k training so i don't think that the training is that much different yeah um just you know we were trying a few new workouts um challenging me uh but yeah it has that's why it's been such an easy transition because I don't think Trent tried to change too much. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and we, we looked back on it earlier. Some of those, you mentioned some of those earlier marathon builds. Now we've talked a lot about the logistics of qualifying for Paris, but I kind of want to take a step back and just touch on that first Olympics in Rio. When I was doing research, I came across this quote from you looking back on your emotions during the race. And you said, quote, you know, suddenly realize you're there and it's happening but it's not how you imagined it. Then it's done. Afterwards, you were just relieved it was over. Now, we interviewed Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni earlier last year, and she said, and it's in her book as well, she had virtually an identical experience in Rio, funnily enough, in her first Olympics. When it comes to those big races, has the mentality shifted at all? And is there any empathy for a, a younger Natasha looking back and going, oh, I, it's so heartbreaking to hear, you know, these massive dreams come true and, you know, multiple elite athletes, some of the most dominant women runners in the world. I think, thank God, thank God it's over. Uh, totally. And I was, you know, like I was said earlier, we have a lot of young people on the team and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm able to talk to them about that. And I know that they're feeling this way and they're telling me like, I have so much anxiety. Shouldn't I be happy that I'm here? And I'm like, that is normal. This is normal. That's okay. Like, because I think you have this idea, you make the Olympics and it's like this, everybody's dream. Oh my gosh, you made the Olympics. But the reality is, yes, I've made the Olympics. And now I have to perform the best I've ever performed. You don't go there to participate. Yeah. You go there to run really fast. And people have, you know, you know, expectations you have expectations and it's just there's just a lot of pressure and being on the world stage the biggest world stage is so much anxiety it's so hard and so you know oh yeah I can just feel that feeling again and like it's like this sick feeling I remember standing on the start line and saying it's a, actually I was signed next to Dominique Scott from South Africa I said I'm either going to throw up or burst into tears and she said, yes, it's very emotional. <laughs> and yeah, and then finishing and seeing my parents, parents in the little like hallway and just crying and be and saying, I'm glad it's done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look back and that makes me sad that I couldn't enjoy it more. But that's a part of the process. That's yeah. just a part of this dang sport. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that I go, got to go again in Tokyo. And I really got to be like excited on the start line and yeah. excited that week and I didn't feel the same anxiety because I was just like you know it was my second time around like no one's really expecting that much from me you know mm. and but I knew I could do well but I didn't feel the same pressure the same anxiety and I yeah. went and did really well and so and you yeah. said it's a product of of this sport I think it's a good lesson for people to take hold of in life generally too right we have a lot of you know, the vast majority of our listeners are amateurs. And I think there's this idea of, oh, if I hit this benchmark in X, then I'll be happy. For a lot of athletes, it's, oh, if I make the Olympics, 
I'll be satisfied with my career. Or if I, oh, as an amateur runner, if I qualify for Boston, then I'll be happy with my fitness. And then you get there and you go, oh, you know, my life is still my life. And there is no fix all. And I think the satisfaction comes in in probably just being able to be present and say, wow, Melindy, we're sipping on wine and Sundays in Tokyo right now. This is this is the end goal. Totally. And I think it's like that in life with everyone, right? Like you get a promotion and you're like, oh, this is great. I can buy the bigger house. You buy the bigger house. I need a boat. You know, you always want more. You're never satisfied with where you're at. And that's just how it is. And especially with running, you know, you run a PB, you want to run a faster PB, you run a Canadian record, you want another Canadian record. You know, it's never enough. And, um, you know, I'm trying to enjoy the process. And that was one of the things that I said to, to Trent, um, and to Lynn this last week was, um, I need to enjoy the process again, because I found it very stressful, um, coming off off Budapest, going into Houston, chasing the standard. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a standard chaser again. And here I am chasing the standard. I didn't race at all from Budapest to Houston. And I love racing. I love racing 10Ks, love racing halves. I need to find that again. And I think if I'm able to find that joy, it'll take some of the pressure off if I'm Mm -hmm. able to do these other things. And so I said, I want to do some 10Ks. I want to do some 8Ks. I want to have some fun this spring. And I, yes, I want to go in like all cylinders firing, but I need to enjoy the process a bit more. And he was receptive to that. And um, he was like, you just need to keep reminding me of that because he gets caught up in, no, that doesn't exactly work, but oh yes, you're a human being. And I need, (laughs) like he'll say that himself. Like, yes, I need to remember the human side is that Natasha needs to be happy. And what makes Natasha happy is to maybe do the sun run, even though it doesn't exactly fit perfectly, but Mm. you know what I mean? Like things like that. A hundred percent. And, and even listening to that, like that is the mentality of a matured athlete who still has that, you know, that competitive drive, you're fitting in a plan D for a reason, but also has that balance of, okay, I have to do what's also going to make me happy as as a three-dimensional human. It's also a mentality that obviously gears you well for coaching, which I know is now an additional focus for you. I guess taking from Lynn or taking from Trent or your own experiences, what are some of the core coaching philosophies that are guiding your approach with, with your athletes now? Number one is, is having joy in running and enjoying the process. Um, and so I actually, this week I'm having meetings with all of my athletes to check in and see how are you doing? Like, I know that it's hard to run over the holidays and it's hard to run through here. So how can we make it easier on you sort of thing? Like we got to remember, like, you have to be enjoying this. Like it, yeah. I know it's hard sometimes, but like, how can we make it easier? What's fun? Do we want to do more races? Want to do less races, right? Like um, remembering that running is supposed to be, you know, it's tough, but you're supposed to enjoy it like yeah. <laughs> sometimes. So um, yeah. And just, I've learned that through Lynn and through Trent Um and, you know, people love to push themselves. So I like to be able to bring the best out of everybody physically as well. And I think you can only get that if they're happy mm. and they're enjoying it. So it's, you know, this circle of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. And to close us out, this is a very busy time for you. So I appreciate you carving out, out the time. And 
I know we have a lot of young listeners listening to this, both, you know, who are sort of on a on a crash course towards those elite fields and also, you know, heading towards amateur running. I know finding joy in running has been a journey for you and, and you've had different strategies of maintaining that, whether it is jumping in an 8K or a cross country or whether it's taking off that pressure in certain aspects. If you could offer a tip for young runners trying to renew their joy in the sport, what would you offer? Oh, I love this question. And you know what Lynn said to me this week, she said, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine yourself this spring. And I want you to imagine yourself happy running. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And I love that she said, I was driving at the time. I'm like, I can't close my eyes right now, but I love that. And I I'm totally going to take that with my athletes and to others and say, like, don't think about what anyone else wants you to do or what your coach thinks you should do. What do you want to do? What yeah. makes you happy when you're running? And is that racing an 8K? Is that racing a half? What is that? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And so um, I think that's my best advice to these young athletes is, you know, really thinking about what, what brings you happiness in running and not being afraid to tell that to your coach and remembering that you get the final say, this is your life, this is your career in running, you get to say what you want. And I've so many times these young elites get caught up in just doing what their coach is telling them to do and I hate it. Yes, they're there to help you. Yes, they're there to support you and help you navigate. You get to decide what you wanna do and what brings you happiness. So don't be afraid to stand up for yourself and to say, I don't want to do that because that doesn't make me happy. Mm. So, yes, it's tough. There's going to be a lot of hard times, but you know, no, really know yourself and and don't be afraid to stand up for for yourself and what you want in your running. And in I love that offering that agency, especially coming from you to young athletes. That's a superpower. So I really, <laughs> really appreciate your words, your wisdom, and doing it through your own voice, giving us some actual insight from the <laughs> athlete. Now, we will keep an eye out on what the race is, but I know you want to own that scoop. So people have to stay tuned, follow you, obviously, on social, keep up with your journey this spring. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time. We cannot wait to root for you throughout this spring and hopefully this summer as well. Thank you so so much for tuning into my conversation with natasha as per usual don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us at shakeout podcast on social media for clips and updates from the pod otherwise thank you so much again to natasha for being so open and offering us insight into such a thrilling olympic year we're going to be watching and of course cheering for her every step of the way it's going to be such an exciting road towards paris in the meantime Happy running, and we'll see you next week. ...on top of the podium, but it's not the hosts. It's their northerly neighbours. And somehow, after an awful year of injury, Degrasse comes out...